When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ed Harrison here for Real Vision. We are live for the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm with my partner in crime today, my editorial buddy, Jack Farley. Jack, welcome back. Great to be here, Ed. Great to be here live. And by the way, I might add, live without net. Exactly. And by the way, we're switching chairs because today I'm the host. Usually you're hosting me. I get to ask you all the, the, the pertinent questions. Uh, the first question out of my mouth is, you know, what's going on in the markets today? How would you describe the markets? It seems like there's not a whole lot going on. What are you seeing? Well, Ed, I'd say if the market were an ocean, I'd say that you've got some placid waters on the surface, but there, you know, there could be a few sea monsters underneath. So as you sort of implied, um, with the equity market, not a lot of ton of action. Uh, the Dow up almost a point. Uh, NASDAQ up 0.37%, and the S&P up 0.82%. So uh, markets did advance higher, but uh, you know the VIX remains um, at that about 20 level. But Ed, what I have my eye on is that earnings are still a thing. And you know, almost 20 companies reported earnings today. And I noticed that one company was down 15%, Etsy. Another company, a lithium uh, a miner and, and producer for electric vehicles, down 9%. That's Albemarle. So even though in the equity action, you know, in the equity uh, indexes, you're not seeing a lot of action underneath, there could be some, you know, chaos roiling underneath. Yeah. And, you know, for me, if I had to describe it, I would say that people are uh, looking for the next trade, meaning that a lot of the reopening trade has already been priced in. The reason I would say that is because when you look at the earnings that we did have that were blockbuster last week from the Fang M, uh, they were great earnings, but really nothing happened in terms of the stocks. It didn't really propel the market forward uh, in a way, even though their earnings were far in ex uh, beyond expectations. So I think that the market's sort of in a wait-and-see mode until it sees what is next on the horizon. And Jack, I would also add that you know I'm looking at the 10-year, and it's at 156.8. It really is not moving a lot. The volatility you were talking about, the VIX, the volatility in the bond market is also relatively low. And I think that that's adding to this sort of wait-and-see mode that I'm seeing. Ed, tell me, I want to get your take on the bond market. We have been stuck in a range, but some of the, some would say, inputs into the bond market, such as the labor market, um, you know, treasury issuance, as well as inflation break-evens, they have not been trapped in a range. We've seen a lot of action in the inputs, despite the fact that bonds have, have remained in that range. Um, what are you seeing? I saw that there was a, you know, some info economic data from the labor market today. What did you make of that? Well, you know, even before we get to the labor market data, and I want to get to that because we had, uh, you know, labor market uh, data yesterday, the private uh, payrolls. Then we also had jobless claims, and then tomorrow we have the uh, the jobs numbers in the U.S. But 
uh, I'm actually thinking about inflation, Jack. I'm thinking about, uh, I, I saw two articles at Bloomberg talking about inflation from different points. So the one inflation that everyone's talking about is supply chain inflation. And uh, this article is basically saying the inflation risk is intensifying because the supply shortages are actually multiplying as we're doing the reopening. So supply shortages are getting worse, and, and it's to the point almost where you're going to see prices rise. It's definitely going to happen. We're at that point now. The second article, which I thought was interesting, is uh, it was titled, Just About Everything Costs More at an American Grocery Store. Um, and they were going through, you know, when people shop for food, that uh, food stocks are going up. And I even saw um, something about chicken uh, prices going up at uh, KFC and, uh, and, and other places because of uh, supply chains. I don't know what it was, but it was also within the inflation, inflation basket. And so my thinking about that is it must be having an impact on expectations, inflation expectations, and therefore, uh, eventually, uh, we should be seeing this in the bond market. But the bond market's not going anywhere. Let me ask you, what are you seeing in terms of inflation expectations, other signs that we're not seeing on the surface when you talk about beneath the surface? Are there other things happening given this inflation story? Well, Ed, there's so much there, and I want to get into the supply chain's disruptions. But if I'm just looking at the chart, just looking at what market participants are pricing in, the answer is clear. People are pricing in more and more in inflation. The U.S. 10-year inflation break-even, so market participants' expectations of what inflation is going to be over the next 10 years, has marched steadily higher, even though we have been in this kind of detente in the bond market over the past two years. Uh, excuse me, two months. And as a result of that, because the real yield is the difference between the nominal yield and the inflation break even, US 10 year real yields have declined. Now, when we had that bond market route and nominal yield surged, uh, that was sort of a catalyst for a real weakness in gold um, that, that you know, went down to as, as into the 1600s. However, today it broke past 1800 because as the US 10 year real yield is declining, basically the value uh, that you can get from bonds in real terms, inflation for adjusted, uh, has declined. And as such, you know, that's what we're seeing uh, uh, from gold. So that's what I have on my radar. Very good. And you know, I know that you are looking even deeper because uh, you told me just earlier about a conversation that you were having. Um, with uh, someone who's deep into the weeds on uh, these pictures of uh, about expectations for how the Fed's going to act. Because, I mean, ultimately, bonds are really a composition of a bunch of short rates in the future uh, amalgamated into one long rate. And the question is, is what is the Fed going to do in, in those short-term futures? Are they going to do what we think they're going to do now or what they're telling us they're going to do? Or are market participants already starting to bet that the Fed is going to accelerate its timetable because of these inflationary uh, underpinnings that we're talking about? Yeah. So I spoke recently with Nancy Davis, who really has her finger on the pulse of interest rate volatility. She actually has the only ETF that currently owns interest rate volatility. Um, and it's, it's so her ETF is called uh, IVOL, and it owns tips as well as 
uh, long options on basically uh, 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 swap rates or, or so-called swaptions. So it's very complicated. And I've been talking with her, and I, you know, she's really opened my eyes into the deep, deep world that is interest rates, futures curved, swaptions, um, you know, swap spreads, forward swap spreads. So I've spent this entire day really deep in that pool, and uh, you know, I'm glad to be. Uh, back up so I can <laughs> on the RVDB so I can get some air finally. But um, yeah, so Ed, you know, we spoke on on the RVDB earlier about how Fed fund futures has been steadily rising as of January first. Um, what market participants thought that the Fed funds rate would be was, you know, barely over ten basis points, which is barely what it is literally today. Um, then on March first, when you had that bond route, suddenly the the Fed funds futures for 2025 say was just under 30 basis points. Uh, now that it's May uh, 6, um, we are at almost 70 basis points. In fact, over 70 basis points for September 2025. So yes, this is extremely far out, and it's not a super liquid market. But basically, what, what Nancy Davis was telling me is that you know the, the investors are calling bullshit on the Fed. They think that they will raise rates. So you've seen uh, not a ton of action in, let's say, the U.S. nominal 10-year, the U.S. nominal uh, 30-year over the past uh, two months, but there's the the March higher in future expectations of the short end of the curve. That action continues to be uh, very robust. And in fact, the five-year forward rate uh, for the U.S. dollar swap rate, which is very swap futures curve, which is very complicated, it actually is in backwardation, meaning that uh, in five years, in May 2026, the market estimates that. Um, you could get money cheaper, essentially, on the 30-year than the 10-year. Basically, and that reason being, Ed, is because they estimate that the Fed will continue um, to raise rates. So basically, I've been deep in that pool, and the message that I have coming back from that pool is, uh, in the deep, deep world of interest rate uh, options and futures, they call bullshit on the Fed. Very interesting. You know, the last thing that you said, I thought I found really interesting. Maybe you can explain it to me because I, I don't understand exactly. But when you mentioned the 10 year and the 30 year, immediately I started thinking about a yield curve, uh, uh, you know, going negative uh, or not going negative, but, you know, the, a yield curve that is not upward sloping, but downward sloping. Uh, so when you say the 30 years lower than the 10 year, is that a downward sloping yield curve, uh, inverted yield curve? Uh, short answer is yes, but I'm talking about a very specific curve that is the U.S. dollar swap curve, where uh, market participants exchange a floating rate for a fixed rate. So that's slightly different than the U.S. Uh, Treasury curve that you're that uh, I, you know that most people think of. So I don't want to necessarily say that people are pricing in a inverted yield curve because when they say yield curve they mean just the basic yield curve. Whereas you know Nancy Nancy likes to play a little bit above the rim, so I had to you know get my ladder. Um, but um, yeah, that's pretty much it. <laughs> right. Uh, I, I, I think it's very interesting. Um, I would say that uh, this is the big the big story as we await uh, what happens with the reopening. Uh, so bringing it back to today. The question is: Is you know what is the reopening going to look like? Uh, how 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 accelerated is inflation going to be? Not just inflation, but I think more and more people are thinking about the Fed when they think about their dual mandate. Less about inflation, they think that Jay Powell is less focused on inflation and more focused on employment. So even if 
the Fed, uh, you know, stays as a result of inflation, they could accelerate their timetable based upon uh, the labor market. So let's talk a little bit about the labor market and, yeah. and what you're seeing there. So we had uh, private payrolls on Wednesday, 742, I think was the number. It was a little bit light because uh, 800,000 were expected uh, in private payrolls. This is the ADP number. Then today, we all had almost 500,000 jobless claims. That's actually the lowest uh, since the pandemic, since March of 2020. And then tomorrow, we're getting a jobs report. Uh, what are you seeing there? What, what's your general commentary? Well, Ed, you know, you, you just uh, relayed the information, but really, I'm the one who wants to hear from you because I've sort of been living in the matrix of interest rate futures. You've been in the real world with the real economic data. So, yeah, I want to hear two things. I want to hear your take on commodity inflation, which maybe we'll get to later. But, yeah, with regards to um, uh, the, the labor market, the data that you just said, Ed, what's your take on that? That's what I want to hear. Well, you know, I was I, before we got on, I, Jack, I was looking at uh, non-farm payrolls. Uh, they were 916 in the previous uh, month, and the expectation that I saw was 978. So we're expecting almost a million jobs, more jobs than we had last time. I think that uh, there are two things to think about. One is, you know, what do the uh, adjustments look like? Usually when there are adjustments to prior months and those are upward adjustments, so 916 say goes to 950 or 960, that would suggest that you know the labor market's doing even better than you thought. Uh, but if we see a underperformance vis-a-vis -vis forecast of 978 or we see some downward revisions to 918, it might give people some pause about you know the robustness of the cycle. Um, so that's the first thing that I'm thinking about. And then the second thing I'm thinking about is that as we take this pause in terms of looking for, you know, what the next impetus for the market is, really, uh, you know, if you believe that the Fed is much more geared toward employment, these are the numbers then to watch, not just for this month, but for the next few months. If we're printing a million jobs, uh, as as the uh, the print every month for April, May, June. I think by the time you get to uh, the middle of the summer, the end of the summer, the Fed is going to change its tune, uh, and so that's what we should be looking for. Yeah, and in fact, I, I heard a commenter on another network who I have respect for say exactly that that the reason that the you know uh, stock market is not uh, being zealous and having a, you know the ebullience we've seen on the incredibly good earnings is because they are pricing pricing in exactly that. But Ed, take me into the weeds. Like, let's zoom in a little bit because I think, from, based on talking with you earlier, that the demand for workers in the economy is red hot, but the demand for work is perhaps slightly less so. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, uh, that that you make an interesting point. Actually, I read an article. Uh, recently, that was very, uh, very interesting. It was in uh, the Pittsburgh uh, Business Times. Uh, and the way that it talked about it, it said that uh, as March was uh, winding down, uh, Clavon's ice cream parlor in the Strip District, you know, they didn't have enough workers to be able to deal with the upcoming spring and summer rush for ice cream. Um, and so then on the 30th of March, they decided, you know what, we're going to double the wage that we're going to offer for uh, you know our, our 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 lowest level employees, the scoopers, 
from $7.25 an hour, which is the minimum wage, to $15 an hour. And then apparently this got this got a lot of coverage in the media. Workers were captivated by it. They, you know, they just got tons of resumes as a result of that. Then there was another part within that article that talked about a woman who works at a sports bar. And in this sports bar, they guarantee that you will make $20 an hour, even if the tips don't, don't bring you up to the $20 an hour. So there's a $2.83 minimum wage for tipped uh, employees. Uh, and then you get your tips on top of that. That should take you up to 20. But if you don't get to that level, they will make up the difference. And this woman, her thing was that, you know, I feel way more motivated. I don't dread going into work the way I do at other places. And obviously, uh, she said other employees feel the same way. So, you know, to me, this is a really complex problem because on the one hand, you have schools that are still closed. Uh, you have um, people who have childcare issues as a result of that. You also have the fact that you're getting unemployment benefits that in 43% of the cases, my understanding is, uh, actually are greater than what you would get if you went to work. And then you also have people who are still very afraid of the virus. Uh, and when you, when you have you know, the ability to get these enhanced unemployment benefits and you have these childcare problems, all of that combines with this low wage uh, problem to say, you know, maybe uh, we are, are not going to re-enter the workforce. I is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? I don't know. But I think that it's a complicated issue and, and we won't get a good feel for it for the next several months, what's actually going on underneath. But my hope and my belief is, is, is that the labor force participation rate will increase over time. And right now, the only reason that uh, the economy is holding together as well as it is, given some of these underlying trends, is because of government transfers. Uh, and that's the thing that will will hold us through until the labor participation rate starts to increase. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Well, Ed, thanks for that. You gave a very objective description of what's going on in the labor market. Some people I've seen on Twitter, though, have almost talked about it very negatively with some revulsion, perhaps, about, oh, my God, we're going to have to double wages. I, I can't believe this. You know, People are having to pay $200 just to get people to show up to an interview. Just to play devil's advocate, Ed, what is so bad about putting money in the pockets of people who need it most You know, for, for the for a very long time, that has been the exact problem, uh, uh, wealth inequality, and then people at the very bottom of the income spectrum who are they have the most uh, propensity to spend it, they actually can't get money, whereas people at the very tippy-tippy top who, you know, they're, you know, how many yachts can you buy, as this goes saying. Like, and that has really been a, a cause for secular deflation over the past 20 years. What's so bad about that finally reversing? Oh, well, you know, I think uh, there's not a whole lot that's bad per se. But well, let me give you an example, just like a numerical example. Uh, so let's say that you know the minimum wage is seven twenty-five. Let's say you made ten dollars an hour, as did uh, uh, your spouse. 
uh, you both work 2,000 hours a, a year. That's 50 weeks times 40 hours a, um, um, a week. And, you know, together combined, you'd be only making uh, $40,000. So, you know, you're getting more than a third more than the minimum wage, and you're still making, in a two-income family, $40,000 a year. So that gives you a sense of how low the minimum wage is. Now, that might work uh, in some low uh, cost of living places, but in San Francisco, where the median uh, two-bedroom apartment is over $3,000, in Massachusetts, where the median is, is almost $2,000, that's not going to work. So I think that uh, it, it's a problem. Um, it, it's a problem that people are living on the edge, and uh, we have to figure out a way to, to fix that. Yeah. And I, I guess the worry is that you're going to have uh, a, way, a, way, a wage price spiral of inflation that's going to sort of take us back to the 1970s when things really got out of control. And, you know, if that happens, I've got my fat tie ready so we can, you know, be on and be on news anchors <laughs> in 1970s style. Um, but, Ed, I, I want to take, take us back about six months, whereas we first began to see that commodity inflation. Um, you know, the price of oil was going up, the price of timber was going up. People were talking it was insane back then. Little did they know. You, however, didn't really think that we'd see true, true inflation. That would be somewhat muted because of this wage price uh, dynamic. With so many unemployed people unemployed, you, you continued. Basically, uh, it would be hard for there to be inflation. You pretty much have been proven right. Inflation has gone up, but it's been muted. I mean, the last print was 2.6 compared to 2.5 expected. So when are we going to see, Ed, that re the real fireworks in the CPI? But even if we saw real fireworks, let's say 3%, 4%, uh, it it could be just a step change. It doesn't mean that it's going to to stay with us. I mean, the the way that I'm looking at it, going back to my previous uh, answer to what we were talking about, um, the government uh, transfers uh, pushing us through. If you combine what I was saying there with what you were saying about the marginal propensity to spend, as soon as the government takes its foot off the accelerator, suddenly you don't have an impetus. Uh, to accelerate the economy. Suddenly, there's a big hole in the economy, and it's not being filled by uh, people actually spending tons of money, just as you were saying. And so those people who are making $7.25, $10 an hour, uh, if they were making $15 an hour, uh, maybe you would see that accelerator, but they're not. And so I think that the new normal just from their perspective, is going to be very similar to the old normal, and that's very much more secular stagnation oriented. And I think that this whole wage price spiral thing is a little bit overplayed. I think it's going to be a muted uh, step change up as a result of, of supply disruptions. Uh, and then after about a year, it will dissipate. Let, let me ask you some questions here, Jack, because uh, we have some. We, uh, I think we might even have a lumber question here uh, that was in in the mix. Uh, let me see if I can find. Yes, here we go. Since you mentioned lumber, this is from Tom. Tom, he asks: uh, Lumber prices look unstoppable. How far does it have to go to affect the housing market? Do you have a view on that, Jack? Well, Ed, uh, I I know a lot more about real estate investment trust than I do about how to build a house, how to buy a house, what house even, even costs. You know, I'm in New York City living in an apartment. 
Um, so I really uh, don't don't know a lot about that. But what what do you think about that? Uh, you know, I, I don't have a lot to say about uh, um, how lumber affects the housing price because I think ultimately um, the biggest component of house price inflation has to do with dynamics that aren't about the the building. Um, that uh, you know those prices get eaten and maybe they can get passed through, but there are other dynamics that are at play and those are probably more fundamental. So I just think that it adds to an overheated market, but it's not a longer term driver per se of what's what's going to cause house price inflation. Yeah, and, and talk about an overheated market. The Fed still continues to pump a minimum of $40 billion worth of uh, dollars into the mortgage-backed security market, of course, the mortgage market. So it's really pouring kerosene on a market that is the uh, most, one of the most overheated sector in the American economy. So you know, are they going to taper by the end of the year? Who knows? Well, you know, interestingly, Jack, I saw today that uh, mortgage rates were at their lowest in three months, that uh, I think it was uh, the Freddie Mac 30-year fixed uh, hit at three-month low. And so, you know, it's not just what people can afford to buy, but it's also the refinancing. So, you know, this is potentially the—this is where the Fed is—this is the secret sauce that the Fed is using uh, beyond just fiscal transfers in order to juice the economy. Because to the degree that people can refinance, that gives them the wealth effect that, you know, they could potentially take money out uh, um, you know, redo their home, et cetera. So the, uh, the 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 housing cycle gives legs to the market, uh, to the economy. So I think that uh, this is something that uh, potentially takes us a bit beyond just the fiscal side and brings in what the Fed can really do with with their low interest rates. Yeah, and um, if you own a mortgage, or if, if you, uh, you know, have a mortgage, I should say, you're actually long optionality because you can refinance if rates go down. And if you own a mortgage, meaning that uh, someone who has a mortgage owes money to you if you're a bank, you're short optionality. So that's there are complicated dynamics there, which I am not an expert on at all. But Ed, I want to ask you a question uh, from Tom. Tom, going back to the labor market, do you think that the labor shortage is transitory or a longer-term issue? Because Ed, I want to hold your feet to the fire a little bit. Let's say this ice cream scooper who's got seven dollars and twenty-five cents now their salary is is more than doubled to fifteen dollars an hour. Um, as our good friend Darius Dale says, no one ever takes a pay cut. So if it's at fifteen dollars now, you know, are they going to take a seven dollars uh, twenty-five cents in a year from now just because the Fed stopped tapering? Well, you know, the I, I think it was Walmart moved to fifteen dollars an hour um, a, a while ago. I think their average salary now at Walmart is fifteen. I think the the um, the starting salary at Costco is something like sixteen dollars an hour. Uh, but you know, that's at the margin. Uh, the uh, the wide swath of of places they're not making those uh, those changes. So you know, I don't see where you're going to get the uh, this sort of uh, wage thing that's going more and more. What I think is going to happen is that all of these extra benefits from the federal government are going to expire at some point in time. Uh, they're not going to be renewed, let's say, in 2022. And when that happens, people will face a, a, a choice. Do they take the $7.25 uh, job, the $10 job, or are they penniless? 
And so you will see more people enter the workforce at that point in time. Moreover, uh, child care issues will have been uh, dealt with because in all likelihood, schools will be open. And so we're going to see labor force participation go up, which is a good thing, but it also means that there's less reason to think that we're going to have upward pressure on, on, on wages. So I'm, I'm uh, skeptical about this whole concept that we have a wage price spiral. I'm still in the, the camp that says it's transitory. So I, I agree with the Fed that inflation is transitory as a result. And I think the deflationary trends are probably still uh, intact. And I think you know where I'd go in throwing a question back to you on that, because one of the first questions that we had here as we were talking, uh, Jack, was about that. Uh, Doug was asking, he was saying demographics, technology, et cetera, pushing for deflation. Uh, what should I look at uh, for uh, Canary in the coal mine uh, to uh, the realization that uh, these are facts? Uh, it seems that inflation is short-term only. I mean, I, that's what I'm saying. What are, you, what are you looking at? I mean, what would change your mind uh, as to what I, I just told you? Well, I, I think conventional wisdom would say that the very you know somewhat lavish benefit not lavish but you know uh, higher than norm very higher than normal elevated levels of, of fiscal benefits for unemployed people and you know stimulus checks that has to end because sooner than later, rather than later the government has to you know restore the uh, uh, but you can't have a budget deficit we've got to restore the balance sheet of the of the American people um what about what about if not? What about if if those these stay for two years? Um, because I, I believe congressional approval, which has you know long been extremely low, is actually relatively high now because people are saying, hey, the government is doing its job; it is taking care of people. You know, a lot more people think that than, oh my gosh, did you see the latest chart for the budget deficit? I am pissed off. I want to email my congressman. Um, I also. Um, so what you're saying is, is like, you know, I think you saw the interview I did with Dario Perkins, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. He's a guy from T.S. Lombard. And basically his argument was that in today's world, post great financial crisis, MMT uh, has come to the fore and it's now the software for a total rethink of the way that we think of fiscal deficits. And I mean, what you were saying was basically what he was saying is, is, is that perhaps, uh, you know, people think about deficits so differently that you will see some level, some permanent level of, of fiscal transfers to people that were unthinkable, say, a decade ago. Yes, I think so. And I think that the reason, let's say, 50 years ago, that there was a, a decrease or relative, there was a cutting of government spending, a cutting of these social programs was because inflation was this you know, bugaboo runaway nightmare that was ruining everyone's lives. Well, it's hard to find someone who doesn't have gray hair, who even knows what you're talking about. Uh, you know, inflation really has been, for, for uh, you know, 30 years, has been uh, muted, uh, you know, not elevated. And over the past decade, it's been too low. Central bankers have been firing billions of dollars into the economy every single day, trying to get just to 2%, and they haven't even managed to, to do that. So I think that fears over inflation, you know, when people in the markets that we talk to talk about inflation, 
they're thinking about, oh, what's the trade? Should I buy gold? Should I buy you know, oil? Should I buy XLE? Whatever. You know, people like Jared Dillon, who I spoke with yesterday. Um, I think when, when uh, government policymakers, they're thinking about inflation as, oh, my God, this is something that uh, we have to avoid. But if it hasn't been present for so long, uh, you know, it, are people really going to be afraid of it if, if it's only something that they heard their parents talk about, you know? Well, you know, let's go a little bit further with that whole uh, thinking that we had with uh, Dario Perkins. So he was saying to me, look, I, I, I agree with you, basically, he was saying about uh, the secular deflationary tendencies, disinflationary tendencies. And, as, and, and I don't see labor with any sort of uh, ability to counteract uh, against uh, capital, meaning I don't see any bargaining power that's increasing there. So after we get this, this spate of, uh, of stimulus, we're going to be back to the old normal. It's only it, once we do sort of MMT-like policies over a longer period of time where over time, labor becomes more powerful and you close the output gap, only then will you uh, need to worry about inflation. That's when gold comes into play. That's what I heard him say, that uh, it's going to be muted for now, but later, uh, that's when you have to worry. The, the outcome, the end game is inflation, not the near-term game. What do you think of that thesis? I think it's really compelling. And I watched your interview with Dario, and I recommend that people uh, at home watch it too, because there's just so much there. And I want to turn us back to the bond market. So if inflation is going to rear its ugly head, then bonds must be grotesquely overvalued, right? No? So let's, uh, let's take one of these many, many questions. Uh, David C. says, why is it that the 10-year is going sideways with everything that is going on with inflation and costs? Yeah, and that's uh, this is the question uh, I'm going to kick back to you, Jack, because the 10 years going sideways, but you just told me not only are inflation expectations going up, but in the swaptions market and uh, you have this backwardation and, and a bunch of other things that are happening that suggest that people are, are actually making real bets uh, for the Fed not actually, for the Fed raising rates more quickly. Why is it that that's disconnected from what we see in the actual Treasury market? I don't have the answer to that. Maybe your interview with Nancy elicited some response. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Well, I know what our colleague Weston Nakamura would say, and it would be in line with something that David Tepper, uh, hedge fund manager, threw out a few months ago, which is that the Japanese are going to start buying uh, treasuries. In other words, foreign demand is going to pl start playing a part, and there is going to be a demand for a pristine collateral that is essentially a uh, positive carry put. In it. it will generate yield for you, admittedly, very close to zero. But it will be something safe that if stock markets tank, if risk assets tank, it's going to be there for, for a rainy day. What else are you going to own? Are you going to own a European bond that you know, has a negative yield? Are you going to own a Turkish bond where the, you know, the, it's just crazy and you, you know, a central banker gets fired every single day? Um, so I, I don't really know. I think, I think that 
you know, currently the, the dollar is the uh, global reserve asset of the world. And if you can own dollars and get yield on it with essentially no credit rate risk, um, that's you know something that people will still want to do. So that's I, I don't necessarily buy that, and I don't necessarily that's going to be something going forward. Someone else in the comment talked about how TLT is 25% sold short, but I think that there are a lot of right. things at play. What do you think, Ed? No, no, I, th I think uh, that's as good an answer as as I could have given. So uh, hats off to you on that. I don't, and, I don't believe you know, that. Uh, since, since we're getting long in the tooth, I'm looking at the time. I, there are three comments that came up after David C's comments. Let's go through them, and, and we'll wrap after that. But I want to ask you, because uh, I have a I have an answer to this first question, but I want to ask you the same question. This is from uh, Deanna, who asks, are there metrics that you're watching closely now as compared to, say, a month ago? And I think the answer is, I don't know if you could say I'm looking at something more closely, Jack, or not. Uh, uh, jobless claims. I'm looking at the uh, the employment numbers. So when I talked earlier about the employment numbers, the my framework is is this is is that I believe that the Fed is actually more concerned about uh, uh, employment than they are about inflation. So when they talk about their dual mandate, implicitly what they are doing is saying we care more about one mandate than the other mandate. We're, we're fine with letting this mandate do whatever it does, because not only are we concerned about this mandate, but there's also social outcomes that we care about, which is are the kinds of things that we were just talking about with average wage earners. So I'm looking at those numbers. If those numbers come in hot, i.e. big numbers on the one side for jobs, and low numbers for jobless claims, then I think the Fed could move up its timetable. So that, those are the numbers I'm watching. How about, how about you? Well, the answer you just gave is so much more cohesive uh, and comprehensive than I'm going to give. But I'll, just, I'll list a few things. Uh, interest rates, obviously. Interest rate differentials, the spread between the 10, US 10-year 10 and the German 10-year, the Italian 10-year, mm, that yes. has edged up higher, which has kind of been a catalyst for money flooding uh, into the dollar. And that's why you know people have been buying bonds, which pushes yields down. Commodities, I mean, lumber's at an all-time high. Lean hogs is pretty close to an all-time high. Copper is over 10,000, whatever the denomination is. So commodity inflation is something I have my eye on. Um, I would add the VIX as a, as a category, so equity volatility. I, I sort of like to take a look at like individual implied volatility for individual stocks, for stuff like XLE, for you know maybe looking at selling puts or, or buying calls or doing some sort of st stuff there that I'm... Uh, and then also, I'd say, lastly, that this new vista, this new world that Nancy Davis has introduced me to of interest rate futures and uh, so, you know, interest rate swaptions. Uh, the spread between f future forwards and, and all this sort of stuff. Um, and that's sort of, you know, now I, I'm one day old in, in sort of knowing the lingo and stuff, but uh, I definitely will have my eye on that going forward. Sounds good. Sounds good. And now here's the next question from Sarah. You already addressed this, but um, maybe you can say it again, Jack. Gold and silver taking flight. Please address. Well, there are two precious metals. Gold is generally thought of as a safe haven that trades inversely with real yields, which real yields is the difference between the nominal and inflation break-even. So as inflation break-evens, market expectations for inflation continue to go higher, that would be a catalyst for gold to go up. The only question is, are nominals going to go with them? Silver is, is kind of like that. And it's, it's, silver is not the fish nor fowl. It's, it's like half like that and then half like 
uh, you know, people people use it for actual real purposes in the real world. So I don't really right. know. What do you think about that? Yeah, you know, I think that, you know, because it's an industrial metal, it shades differently. But people look at the gold-silver ratio. I, have, I, I, don't, I don't know what's happening there. So I, I'm not watching that as closely. So I, I can't give you a response. But um, it makes a lot of sense that when real yields decline, uh, then people don't like that. And so they look for—gold uh, becomes more interesting as a result of that. Yeah. So final question for us. This is an interesting question. I, I like it. Uh, Doug F., uh, he uh, quotes a Bloomberg headline, the White House backs nuclear subsidies that split climate advocates. And his question is, is what it will do for uranium prices. Um, let me give you my answer, Jack, and then yours, because I don't know what it's going to do, except, I mean, it would suggest it means that prices are going to go up. But I mean, uh, let me just filibuster this whole question with the concept that maybe Biden uh, thinks that nuclear is actually a solution as opposed to a problem. You know, a lot of people, when they look at clean energy, they always exclude uh, nuclear. They think of nuclear as dirty. Uh, but nuclear could be one of the solutions that's on the table in the future. I'd like to see a lot more commentary on Real Vision about uh, how nuclear fits into the future, uh, what that means for the uranium market, and also the environmental impacts of uh, of nuclear. Uh, just without knowing more, I would I would bet that nuclear will be a big part of the solution in green, so-called green energy. I think that that's a good point. Uh, I I will say Ed that Lynn Alden did an interview with a hedge fund manager named Marcelo Lopez who exclusively invests in uranium mines. And he recently, I actually am speaking with him later tonight. He's in Australia, so it'll be Friday for him. He uh, he had a good quarter. I, that's that's my belief. And if you look at something like CCJ or uranium uh, ETFs, that, that trade has definitely worked out. Ed, my final question for you comes not from the audience, but from, from <laughs> me, which is, Tell us about this exponential age. You've heard we've heard Raul talk about it, but I want to hear you had an interview with Raul that's going to air on Monday to sort of start us all off. What did you learn from that interview? What do you think about the exponential age? What does that mean to you? Yeah, you know, I think it is very. It's fascinating. I, there's so many different threads. I, I couldn't do it justice in the amount of time that I have. I'll try to put something together. Um, I, the thing that Rao said that was the biggest takeaway for me was the nexus of exponential activity. So, I mean, the way that I, that I'm thinking about it, when you think about technology and you think about uh, things being exponential, you think about individual technological innovations as happening in a vacuum. Uh, let's say, you know, Moore's law, where computing uh, power. Uh, every 18 to 24 months, it doubles uh, for the same price. That's something that happens, and you know that's in the, its world. But when you combine that technological innovation with AI, and then you combine it with uh, you know the internet and a bunch of other things coming together, it creates this super uh, uh, connectivity that uh, that causes a, a monster exponential uh, age. Which we, I think, saw, and this is the the aha moment for me in the mRNA vaccines for the pandemic. You know, Raul talked about that specifically about how you know people didn't understand 
how much the exponential age was going to cause us to be able to get these vaccines as quickly as we did get them. Uh, that's, a, that's a perfect example in a very positive way about the exponential age working for, for the greater good of society. So I still have a lot of thoughts, but I mean, that's the, the, that's the thing that stands out the most, that these um, exponential increases in technology all are coming together, uh, hopefully in a positive way, but certainly in a way that creates uh, a massive disruption uh, to existing processes. Absolutely. And I think that's what Rao calls a mega trend. You know, in 10 years, do you think there are going to be more electric vehicles on the road or fewer? And how you express that trade is, is your business. And you know, the people at the audience's business, they may want to buy Tesla, perhaps. That's been a good trade. They may want to buy Volkswagen. I know we're speaking to a, someone very high up at a research team uh, from Volkswagen, so I'm excited to see that. Some people may want to buy uh, you know, lithium mines, because that's a key input into electric uh, uh, batteries, lithium batteries. Some people might want to buy rare earths, key input into the motors for electric vehicles. But uh, and one thing that a lot of people seem to think is a mega trend and uh, is crypto assets, um, that, that, that technology. And some may say, a poster child for it, at least a month ago, was Coinbase, which had this uh, direct listing. What if I were to tell you, Ed, that Dogecoin's market cap now exceeds that of Coinbase? Is Dogecoin a megatrend, Ed? <laughs> yeah, I, you know what I'm going to say is I'm I'm going to uh, I'm in ch- uh, timeout on on this conversation because I, 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 you know, Jack, that in the comments you added that question specifically because you know that it's going to trigger people in the comments. Uh, that we're talking about Dogecoin all the time. Uh, so I'm just going to give a good laugh to that. I'm going to sign us off today. It's been a pleasure, as it always has been. Um, we And just know, before we sign off, everyone, Jack and I, we talk about Dogecoin all the time. But you know he's doing this on purpose, trust me. Um, thank you very much, Jack. It's been a pleasure. And, uh, and I'll see you again next week. Pleasure's all mine, Ed. Thanks so much. And um, yeah. So- we got to do this again with Bennington. I'm sure he's got a lot of thoughts on Dogecoin. <laughs> yes, definitely. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.